is going on? Welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, live on location at Canucks Prospect Development Camp here at UBC. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are live from the mobile Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. I'm Jamie Dodd, of course. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Strance, also covering the team for The Athletic. Uh, it's been a fun day so far out here at Canucks Prospect Development Camp. The team's split. They were, they were forwards and defense yesterday for the first couple of days of the camp. Now they're just into different groups, mingled you know, forwards and, uh, and defensemen split evenly amongst those groups. We'll see a scrimmage tomorrow. We saw some fun three-on-three work today. Drancer, it's been a good time out here at UBC. Yeah, the three-on-three small area game is super fun. It's uh, great. It's really great, although an invite ran goaltender yes. Makita Tolopilo. You can go to Chris Faber's Twitter account. He captured it in gruesome detail to check out the video, and that is an absolute faux pas. Yes. As an invite, you don't want to run the goalie who's like legitimately in the NHL, uh, the NHL team's like AHL depth plans, right? So um, we see him skating with the second group. We'll, we'll ask about it when we uh, when we maybe get a Canucks development coach on with us later today. Yeah, and uh, before we get into some of the other stuff, just a, a few of the things that have popped or we've noticed beyond you know the unfortunate of Tolapilo getting run in the three on three small area drill. A name that I know a few people have talked about and uh, have had their eyes on, and for good reason so far at least, invite to camp Christian Fitzgerald, who's from Coquitlam. <laughs> he's going to the University of Wisconsin next year. He's already yeah. in the NCAA, but and he's he, transferring to Wisconsin. And he was at Mon- Mankato before. Yes, with uh, Akito Hirose. And Max Sasson. Mm-hmm. And their coach moved to Wisconsin because yep. um, uh, the Granado yes. was, was um, dismissed after a really tough season for the Wisconsin Badgers, one of the storied programs in NCAA Div One hockey, and so he'll he'll follow his coach to Wisconsin transfer portal. Yeah, and, and okay, this kid dominated. He was the, the best player three in the game. three on three, the and best skater by a bit. You know, a lot of what we talked about, right? Just the the confidence on the puck, the control, the level of control on the puck, right, and having your head up while also still being in complete control, being able to make plays. Like that was all, all of those things we were talking about yesterday. That was all on display from Fitzgerald in that drill. Plus the goalies couldn't stop his shot. He scored uh, a goal with a, you know, quick rising high wrist shot, tons of torque on it. And then moments later, uh, hit the post with the exact same play. Now, one thing I would bring up because Fitzgerald of course is not Canucks property, although Mm -hmm. presumably the club will stay in touch there. It's certainly um, an early name to watch to monitor as for, for the sure. NCAA free agent class next year. Absolutely. As uh, as Scott Young, you know, prepares his priority mm-hmm. list for next season. But this, so he he was playing in that three-on-three with Hikito Hirose. And I know there's some excitement about Hikito Hirose. There should be, based on what we saw toward the end of last season. Not to mention the fact that he's got jokes. But what was cool about watching Fitzgerald dominate wasn't just how he played. It was how Hirose recognizing that his line mate was feeling it mm. started just filtering in the puck. Like he'd go win the battles and filter him the puck. He, he threw a pick at one point on yes, the, on the, did. on the play <laughs> that, a, uh, it was a good play. It was a Fitzger- veteran play yeah, from was, Hirose. You know, uh, very Stockton and Malone with <laughs> Fitzgerald and Akito Hirose. And, 
you know, it's just a three-on-three area game, and it's just training or de- Devel- development, development camp. Development camp, yeah. But, you know, it's nice to have fun. It's nice to win. And the way that Hirose wins, both in terms of making the NHL, making an impact at the NHL, but also playing and enjoying himself in a three-on-three area game, is to amplify the skills of those around him. Be the signal caller. Make sure the guys who can make a difference have the puck in their hands and in a favorable environment. And that's truly what the job of a defenseman is. Uh, to me, it was um, just one of those moments that reinforced what I liked about Hirose's game, which is you know the awareness of your limitations, the willingness to defer, and the understanding of who to defer to and when. And that's a crucial skill set, especially if you're going to be like, a non-physical, non-scoring yep. minutes eater at the NHL, if you're the guy who just makes the right play, and he did in that three-on-three area game, that gives you a shot. Uh, you know, Hirose just doing Hirose things, although I didn't hear any dry quips um, on the ice at <laughs> well, Canucks you never know, camp. though. <laughs> well, <laughs> they might have been. I, I would say when, when that shift ended, because it was all on the same shift. Fitzgerald scores, and then he hits the yep. same, and he hits the post on the next play. Uh, after, after they'd all changed out, Hirose did go over to Fitzgerald, and they enjoyed a laugh like, Oh, man, we absolutely schooled them. <laughs> I would love to know, like, what Akita Hirose's trash talk game. Just, like, super dry measures. Cutting, <laughs> devastating. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the other name I did want to bring I, up. I actually don't want to know what it's like. I have no desire. <laughs> the other name I did want to bring up, just because he always fascinates me, especially in an environment like this, is Yoni Yerbo, who, of course, uh, third-round pick from the Canucks in 2020. He was actually their, the first selection they made in that draft because they didn't have a first or a second uh, coming out of the the bubble playoff season. And he is the type of player, like, I can completely understand why a development staff would want to get their hands on him. You see him in this environment specifically. He's six foot three. He skates like the wind. His athletic tools are completely out of control. Ridiculous. And even, you know, his hands, after the session ended, right, and the guys were going off the ice, you remember the Tiger Woods commercial where he's, like, you know, yep. uh, doing the keep up with his with his wedge and the for golf sure. ball? He's doing that with the blade of his stick and the puck on end for, yeah. like, a long time, oh, keeping I know. it up and doing tricks with it and stuff. And this is a six-foot-three defenseman, right? And you I see know. him here, you're like, wow, this guy has the goods. Like, this guy is this guy's going to be something. You know, it doesn't always translate to what no. he's doing over in Europe, but – it's just every – I had the exact same reaction to seeing him last year at this event. He just stands out in so many ways. The question is, is it ever going to translate to being a winning hockey player? But you can't help but notice him when you're watching it out here. Yeah, you know, people say things like he's got an NHL body. Yeah. It's like, this guy's the Terminator. <laughs> he's gigantic. His stride is completely effortless. And, and I talked about this a little bit yesterday, the, the way of judging players based on their control. The sound – when the puck hits Yermo's stick, it's like, yeah. click. It's like, there's, it's nothing. His hands are outrageous. And yet, you know, it's unavoidable that for all that, and, and it might be Patrick Alvin's favorite thing to say, right? It's not a marathon, or it's a marathon, it's not a sprint mm-hmm. in terms of player development. You know, Yoni Yermo was now drafted three years ago, and the mm-hmm. Canucks have, to this point, not signed him to an entry-level deal, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, pretty sure. I, Just Will you fact-check that yeah, for me? But I'm, I'm very confident that that's correct. And it's very clear already that the club is not bringing him over to Abbotsford for next season, which means, you know, you'll, you'll be facing a decision on Hirose come 2024, which is not a, a long way away at this point. So, you know, 
Hirose, or sorry, y- Yoni Yermo. Yermo. Excuse yeah, me. He hasn't signed it. Yeah, no, I know, I know, he, I knew he hasn't. I just wanted to absolutely make sure, so yep. I didn't make a vast, elaborate point without, <laughs> um, you know, and then be like, my bad. Take that five minutes back, like when they when they rule out like four and a half minutes of the most scintillating possession you've seen in hockey because it's offside. <laughs> it's offside yeah, and it just like, and it just falls into a black hole <laughs> of enjoyment. Count. None of the yeah. stats count. The Canucks yeah. had one of those. Uh, it was uh, in the 1920 season. It was like 108 minutes of just like some of the most beautiful power play puck movement I've ever seen ruled off because of a like inch offside from yeah. a minute and a half ago. And it's just like, come on. That's ridiculous. Um, anyway. The fact that Yermo is not coming over to be evaluated in North America uh, next season, the fact that he hasn't been signed in the club's now a year out from having to make that decision, like that's not an endorsement. You know, nope. it's not. It's not. It's not dead in the water, but that it does speak volumes, right? Like it's one of those things where listen, look at what a club does as opposed to what they say, and what they're saying with their actions in terms of Yermo's contract status is we don't know. Yep, we don't know yet. And the other thing I would add is look how much more competition there is in the prospect pipeline on the blue line than there was just a couple years ago, right? After he, uh, when he was drafted, it's like, well, hey, this guy has some upside. He's one of their best defense prospects. Yeah. Now the the talent they've added and all throughout a couple drafts and a free agent class and all that, it's a much different situation there. Well, and if you if you're looking at Johansson and McWard Mm -hmm. to get minutes, and probably Jet Wu unless he surprises Mm -hmm. and makes the team, right? Um, but Potentially it, Akito Hirose. There's, he's not a guarantee for the NHL No, but, he, he, but right side, left side. Sure. Well, so Yermo's a lefty, no? Yermo's, yeah. oh, he is. He's, okay, he's right. left, yeah. So, excuse me. So then you're looking at Hirose and, um, yeah, I mean, one of Willan and Brisebois, surely, yep. and on and on. You know, there, there's clearly a judgment call that, hey, we don't even know if we'd be the best development environment for him. Um, so the stakes are really high for Yermo to make an impression and secure a contract uh, this season over in Finland, and for all that he can do, and he can do an unbelievable amount, you know, clearly his hockey sense and defensive play is leaving scouts a bit cold, but I watched that skill set, and I'm like, you know, before you don't sign him, do you try him at wing? <laughs> try to get something out of him? I mean, the the, the tools are unbelievable. This he, I think I made this analogy last year at this event, but he reminds me of when you see, like, a defensive end prospect blow up the NFL combine with his measurables. Right. And then you go to his stats and he had like two sacks in college. Sure. You're like, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. This guy is an absolute force of nature, but he didn't get it done when he was actually on the field. Now teams still draft that guy. Totally. And sometimes they end up being a productive player in the NFL. It's just, it's one of those things where they're so suited to pop in one environment, but you have to wait what they do outside of that environment as well. Yeah. And you know what it reminds me of though? It reminds me of uh, like Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to hunt down Sarah Connors to make sure that she doesn't give birth to the man who defeats the robot army. Sure. <laughs> of course. Of course. That's what it reminds you of. Man's the Terminator. I don't know what else oh to say. It's unbelievable. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, hit us up with any questions you have about Canucks prospect development camp. I'm stoked to be here tomorrow when they do the scrimmage to wrap Sorry, things up. Do you up. think there's a Terminator combine? <laughs> it's like, oh man, he ran a 2.540. Well, I feel like there wouldn't be. I feel like there wouldn't be a lot of um, like tension or, or guesswork because it's just they're like they're machines, right? So. Presumably, the what would the, what was the next one? The T two thousand. Presumably, he'd just be better yeah. than the, the Schwarzenegger. He had version. a really boring pre-draft interview. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> okay, sorry. Anyways, um, 
Uh, as I said, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. As and Jamie tries to get us back on course. <laughs> Desperately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as we, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about DevCamp throughout the course of the day. But, of course, lots to get into with the Canucks' main roster and still you know, wrapping up what they've done so far this summer, looking ahead to the rest of the summer. This text comes in from Reg. He says, is it just me? Is anyone else deathly afraid of what happens if either Pedersen, Pedersen or Miller go down for any length of time? Who Oof. can play top two center minutes? I'm still not sure Miller is a number two center. He's a winger in my eyes. This team is in trouble up the middle. That's from Reg. And Ewan Harmon, who's going to join us in about 15 minutes here, published a an updated Canucks depth chart up at the Athletic, going through the entire organization and just – all right, from, from first place to eighth place, who's, you know, the, the number one left winger, the number two left winger, et cetera, for every position. And we can get into some of the takeaways uh, throughout the course of the show there. But, yeah, to Reg's point, the depth or lack thereof at center really does stand out. And I like Teddy Bluger as a player. But when you – the drop-off from the – Pedersen Miller tier to the Bluger Oman Dries tier, which are the other three guys who have played in the NHL in the organization at center. I guess Atu Ratu has played as well, but yeah, I don't I don't view him as somebody who's necessarily pushing for NHL minutes this year in this organization. He feels like a project still, right? Yes, absolutely. But but which I have no problem with. No, I in fact that's better. I mean Exactly. You know, we're so I've got Ratu takes for days, but the the fact of Ratu is he is younger than a lot of the players we're watching on the ice right great here. Point. You know, yep. uh, I mean, he played at the same age. Like, he opened last season at 19 and went on to play a dozen NHL games and produce .6 points per game in the American League in yep. a season that opened when he was 19 years old. That's not cause for concern. Like, people are talking a lot about the foot speed, and they should be. He's going to have to work on that. But, like, that's really good stuff. <laughs> That's a really promising sign mm-hmm. in terms of historically what do players who crack the league at 19 go on to do? They tend to be really, really good. So, um, but are you counting on Ratu next year? No, and that I, to me is the and I think it, is you, a no. You want to make a point not to. Yeah, like you want to make a point to put him in a position to thrive in Abbotsford. And if you take out, unless you come to camp and he's gained he blows 10 you pounds away. and yeah. with that added core strength is now an Has above average skater. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. You got to leave room for that, but. Without factoring well, they've in left room for that. that <laughs> sure. Without factoring in Ratu, again, the drop-off from Pedersen Miller in your top two to the Drys Oman Bluger tier, that's a really steep drop-off. And oh, yeah. even, even just filling out your third and fourth line centers with those guys leaves you stretched a bit thin, let alone if you get to the point where Reg is talking about where if you have an injury to Pedersen or Miller, then you're in a heap of trouble down the middle. Well, and are we confident? I mean, sometimes we get this thing in where – we assume something and it just becomes fact Mm -hmm. and the team uses a player a certain way and so we just kind of don't question it and Neil Zaman fourth line center feels to me like sort of one of those things you know if you're gonna have Teddy Bluger playing above his head as a third line center yep what's the concern no offense okay what's the concern with Neil Zaman playing fourth line center is there a concern that this team doesn't have enough offense at in the bottom six? And if that's the case, why do we pencil Amon in 
as a certainty over dries? Yeah, it's a very fair question. Right? right? I mean, is that not worth Dries is the only guy in that mix who has offensive tools, right? Like, or who can play second power. Like, who, exactly. What's your, who, plays, who takes a draw for your second power play unit if Miller and Pedersen are both on – you know, like, nobody. Is it Teddy Bluger and a quick change? And yeah, you're, or it's and like, you're seeding or they the just, advantage, or of, they just throw a winger out there and are like, right. well, "Well, we'll have you on the ice, and we'll see what happens." Yeah, Besser could do it, but I mean, Besser's decent in the draw for for a centerman, or sorry, for, for a, winger. a winger. I don't know that I don't know that people realize this, but he's like pretty he's pretty good at the winger win when it comes down to it. Um, anyway, the fact is, is I think yeah, I think at the very least, you'd look at this team's center depth and say they should get. A another dries type, another bet. But given what's still remaining on the open market, I think you can do better than that. Well, that's the, that's the really interesting thing, right? I was kind of anticipating if the first center signing we saw was Bluger, that we would see another signing in that rough tier, right? And we'll, you know, you can sort the the players that are still on the market however you want, but it's a, a, a low cost low-risk center ad who maybe brings a bit of a different skill set than Teddy Bluger, right? Whether it is more offensive upside, you know, right shot versus left shot, somebody you feel just slightly more comfortable bumping up the lineup in case of an injury, something like that. I mean, that's still – I do wonder, as the uh, the free agency market has started to slow down a little bit here, right? We haven't seen as much movement. Screech but there are to still a halt. Na- there are still names like that that kind of fit what I'm talking about out there and it, to me it's just a question of do the Canucks feel like they have the cap space and the flexibility because that, when I look at this roster just in terms of functional depth right not in terms of increasing the ceiling or adding a star we can talk about all that but just in in terms of plausible kind of depth bottom of the roster moves that's the clear area of need to me is adding another center who has a little bit of a different skill set than Bluger and Oman do yeah and I mean th- there aren't a lot of names, right? There aren't a ton of guys overall. Um, a lot of them would be like hope bet ish, mm-hmm. with the exception of you know the the Suter, Paul yep. Stasny sort of tier, and Stasny mostly played the wing for Carolina. Um, so you know, I don't want to understate how significant the club's options are, or overstate how significant the club's options are here. They're they're not like there's not a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. Um, remaining that could plausibly slot into your top nine. But I do think bringing in, you know, an an extra body, even if it's like a Jackson Cates tier Mm. guy, you know, basically a drives with a different skill set. Yeah. You know, would would certainly help. But I I do think it's – I don't think you should take a team's strengths for granted. Like the Canucks scored so much last year that we just assume they're going to score. And it's not – a faulty assumption given the top end skill on this lineup in this roster. But, you know, with Pedersen on the ice, for example, the Canucks shot, you know, 15%. <laughs> like goalies, goalies struggled last year across the NHL, but 85% it's pretty save good. percentage pretty good. is pretty outrageous. I mean, that's that's like you're shooting on John Garrett full time. Uh, sorry, Cheech. Wow. <laughs> Shots fired. At, at this age. Not in his oh, pro okay. career. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, then it's a compliment, really. Um, but the, you know, that you can't take for granted that you're just going to get Kuzmenko finishing at 25% sure. and Mikheyev finishing at 15% at 5-on-5 and Pedersen doing all of the things that drive that, even though he does reliably drive efficiency. 
you know, with Miller on the ice last season, this team didn't manufacture a lot of offense five on five. They mm-hmm. didn't. Now, there was some bad luck there, conversely, but also he generates a lot more five on five offense when he's on the wing. Mm hmm. Or when he's playing center but in softer matchups, you know, with Bo Horvat playing the matchup role, which is what he did during the Boudreaux bump sort of bit, right? Um, Asking him to be the matchup guy and play center, you know, I don't know that that's a reliable source of even strength offense. And then, you know, what's the third line look like? Because that's a big one to me and something we bring up in the article. And I do think, and we have people, a lot of people texting in uh, about this and texting in, you know, bringing up Connor Garland's name as a bottom six option, which I think is a good, not as uh, not at center, obviously, but as yeah. something to address bottom six offense. And I am, I, I really think they might have to consider putting together a kind of all offense bottom six line. And I think back to when Travis Green was still coaching the team yep. and he played Adam Gaudet. At third line center, but With it was not Roussel third line center. And Vertanen. It was you're getting you're starting all the time in the offensive zone. We're going to do everything we can, well, and they to played, put you in a position. And they to meaningfully succeed. played fourth line minutes. Exactly. Though the problem with that approach is to to pull that off. It only ever worked with Mott in the lineup because Mott could kind of drive things for Beagle Schaller. Mm. And then that line got turfed into a matchup they reliably lost, but you'd hope to but come like out even on water. the scoreboard. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, you don't even tread water. You hope to come out even on the scoreboard. Yep. And maybe, you know, once every five games you get an against-the-grain goal from, from Mott. Um, you know, you could put that line together with Bluger, Joshua, and Mikheyev. Yep. Like, that to me would be the uh, equivalent. Um, with Mikheyev in the in the Mott role, and obviously an upgrade yes, <laughs> on, on yes. Tyler Mott in that role, um, you know that that's doable. I can see that, but yeah, I mean honestly, that might be my preference. Is if you put that line together and you build the only the problem and you is you go the, like Drys Garland and somebody. Well, right? I, Drys Garland Hoaglander had one really good game together last year, and then the, they had one iffy game, and then we never saw it again because guess what? Short guys don't get a lot of rope. In yep. the NHL. But to me, that would be the, the best you could do. Um, and I like the idea of, like, a low-end triplets combo. <laughs> I just cannot see Rick Tockett doing it. No. I can't. I mean, I wonder if it, you know, like, dries Garland Pod Colson to give them a bit of Hest or something like that, right? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, here's the thing. They've got options when it comes to plugging wingers around in different places. There's well, no shortage of guys that they can try out. And the Pod Colson one is fascinating, and we'll, we'll I'm sure, debate we this will. all through training camp. But, you know, I mean, if you're talking about a guy who can change what this team's floor and ceiling are, you know, getting getting the Vasily Pod Colson we saw for the last 20 games of that Boudreaux bump back you know, next season, that would mean a, that would be a transformative ad for this team. Yeah. As opposed to the fourth line caliber piece that they had last year. Uh, Andrew and Langley on the center discussion says, how about Jack Studnika? Didn't get a lot of run there at all <laughs> last year, and especially not under Rick Tockett. Tockett saw one period and yeah. moved him back to the wing and then saw one period and moved him to the press box. Um, yeah. You know, look, I liked Studnika a lot in the American League. I was way higher on that deal than the public, I think, when it went down. Um, so, I mean, I think there's something there. I like the range. I like the speed. Um, but we've already seen him struggle to make a quality first impression in that spot yeah. with this coaching staff. So there'll be a fair bit of work to undo if he's going to, A, be a lineup regular, and B, be a lineup regular at center. That seems like a, a bit of a stretch to me at the moment, but, hey, stranger things have happened yeah. in an NHL you training never, camp. You never see. Or you never know. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens in training camp in September. Uh, up next on the show, also from The Athletic, Harmon Dial 
We'll continue the discussion about how the Canucks' depth chart is shaping up, what else they might look to do throughout the rest of the summer. We are live at Prospect Development Camp. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Rance, live from the mobile Kintech studio here at Canucks Prospect Development Camp at UBC. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Harmon Dial going to join us. Uh, momentarily here. Let's talk a little bit more about how the Canucks depth chart is shaping up. Glennon Richmond says maybe the potential Myers trade is bringing back our third line center and Bluger becomes fourth. Uh, Well, we heard from Frank Saravelli yesterday on Canucks Central. The reported, his reported potential Myers trade with the San Jose Sharks was for winger Kevin LeBanc, who's making, I think, just a hair under five million as his cap figure. The cash is a little bit different this year. And Really, I mean, that's the type of deal you would expect, right? A bad money for bad money deal just at a different position. Doesn't sound particularly appetizing to me just because of where the Canucks needs are on their roster. And if you traded Myers, you just immediately open up a hole that you have to fill (laughs) on your blue line and you're getting a winger. You already have so many wingers. I can understand why that deal didn't go through, but I don't think you're getting a... That's the thing, right? With the, the types of players the Canucks have that they're trying to trade, you're not getting somebody who moves the needle back for one of them. I'd rather be selling a $6 million defenseman with $1 million in salary remaining. At the deadline? At, at the deadline yep. than an undersized winger, even if I, I do think LeBanc is, like, underrated because of the struggles that the Sharks have had. Like, I think he can help a good team, but in terms of market value and, and overall asset management, I think you'd rather have Myers at this point. Uh, joining the conversation now here on Canucks Talk, he is, of course, covering the team for The Athletic along with Drancer, our guy Harmon Dial. Harmon, what's going on, man? Nothing much, guys. How are you? We're doing well. We're uh, having a great time out here. At least I am. I don't want to speak for Drance. I'm having a great time out at Canucks Prospect Development Camp. I'm fine. <laughs> so we were talking a little bit about uh, the Canucks depth chart, and I know you guys had the big piece breaking it down up at the Athletic, and specifically at center and how thin it gets behind Elias Pedersen and JT Miller. You know, given all of the limitations that they have on their salary cap and with the flexibility and everything right now, and given, you know, the pieces still out there on the market, if they are looking to add another player kind of for a a bottom-of-the-roster type center position, what type of player do you think they should be looking at for that? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, sure, you could – you'd probably maybe be looking for ideally another sort of um, depth center around league minimum who in the case of injuries or, or let's say a uh, player like Neil Zaman for whatever reason is struggling and you sort of, or, or there are injuries, you need a, need another body that can play center. Um, you know, that that type of piece could be useful. But for me, if anything, what this team like the Canucks were stuck in a tough spot heading into this off season where they needed ideally a legit three C, but the market didn't have attractive options in terms of um, players relative to cost. Right? If you wanted a legit three C, you would have been overpaying for a guy like a JT Comfer. So the Canucks they sort of took the 
smart conservative route in going after Teddy Bluger uh, to sort of try and fill that role as uh, as a stopgap, which is which is great, good value signing. I like the move, but still, you're in a spot where Bluger's probably a fourth liner on a good team at this stage, and so for me, it isn't necessarily like when I look at the center depth. It's still like, yeah, you could probably, you know, in an ideal world, want another legit top nine center. It's just at this point, I don't think that's realistically feasible uh, given the team's cap situation, given the asset situation, and um, and just a lot, lack of available names out on the market. So in terms of further business, I mean, maybe you want to add another depth, uh, depth center. And that's one thing where I think even when you look at the left wing situation and even when you look at the right wing situation, I think – once you get past sort of like the fourth or fifth winger on each side, um, you get to young guys pretty quickly, like the Aiden McDonough's. Um, and so I want, or, or even like Linus Carlson's where, where you still don't know if a guy like that is, would be ready to, you know, call up and, and play competent NHL minutes. So maybe you, you'd want another like quad a type, uh, type forward, somebody who can play multiple forward positions. I think, Something like that would be most useful at this stage, but you're not really talking about a player that would really move the needle for this roster. Yeah, were you surprised when we went through that exercise just how thin it is? Yeah, a little bit. Um, because, again, at, at left wing, right, it's like you have four or five names, and then after Hoaglander, it's like McDonough. And, look, McDonough didn't look out of place at all in, in, his, in his games down the stretch, but he's raw, and for his development, you probably want him to spend – um, time in the American League playing in, you know, playing top six minutes and really sort of becoming comfortable with pro hockey as opposed to being in a situation where if the club gets hit by a couple of injuries on the wing that you're potentially yo-yoing him up and down. Um, you know, similar thing on, on the right side. It's not uh, it's not too long before you get to, you know, a name like Danila Klimovich on, on the right wing. And so, absolutely, I think when you look at the team situation, even, even again at center after dries, it gets pretty thin. Um, you're talking about a guy like Aturatu, um, who again is probably best served with, with a full year in the American league. Um, so I think maybe another like veteran, you know, like I said, another veteran sort of utility versatile type forward that can, you know, play multiple forward positions that, you know, probably, you know, starts a season in Abbotsford, um, and is, you know, you look at that guy and go, okay, like that's a reasonable call-up option. Like another, another Sheldon Drys type signing, if anything. Like um, when he was initially signed, it's like this guy's starting in Abbotsford and um, yet he's going to be an option when, um, uh, you know, when injuries strike. And, and obviously in due time last season, he, he just straight up made the team. So, um, yeah, that's maybe an area where the Canucks could, you know, add a piece or two. With... Where they're situated right now, Harmon, the Canucks have 46 contracts committed, right? And 47 once Hoaglander signs. We know that they'll want to keep an additional body uh, or at least an additional contract slot or two for the, for the sake of flexibility and, and to aid their college recruitment efforts, presumably. Um, are, are we really looking at in terms of business to expect over the balance of the season? Like, would you expect more than one ad somewhere? Um, not, not necessarily, I mean, I think so because like, I, I think one might be two spot because, you know, there's a good point in terms of you're, you're getting closer to, um, you know, the 50 contracts or limits and obviously you want to maintain some flexibility because, you know, even if trade opportunities arise in the future or, you know, there ends up being somebody you really like on waivers, um, 
you know, you don't want to be in a situation where you're, we're, we're trying to make any moves becomes more complicated as, as a result of trying to manage all those types of contracts. And, um, you know, there aren't many other sort of obvious needs on the roster anyway, at least when you talk about NHL, NHL players and, um, you know, holes on the back end or the forward group, it's, you know, it, you're, you're pretty close to what I think is the type of lineup that uh, we'll see on opening night in, um, in October. So, I think the definitely the vast majority of their business seems to be done, and um, barring some type of you know creative trade or something for you know one of their winger contracts or something, which I would would be surprised by. Um, I don't think you know I'm not expecting a lot. Is it fair to say, Harmon, and this this kind of surprised me a little bit just looking at your piece today that the blue line is now the deepest place, just in terms of guys you can look at and say you know what they can come up and play in the nhl and we're not too worried about it is, is the blue line now the deepest place in the organization yeah no seriously like looking at the right side of the depth chart i was like i was surprised because i was like man there are a lot of guys that can play depth uh depth minutes and you look at somebody like uh, philip johansson coming over from sweden and he's like he's a guy that management is pretty high on and believes mm-hmm. that at some point next season that he could play NHL games and yet I'm looking at all, all the names in front of him and I'm like like he might not get a chance to chance to play even if uh even if uh, there are a lot of injuries and, and look that's a good spot to be in, right? And it's a product of uh, a player you know, players like Noah Juleson sort of taking um a, a step and showing that hey, in a pinch they can play NHL um minutes of course um, the signings of, of guys like Akito Hirose and, and Cole McWard really really beefing it up there, and um, even on the, uh, even on the left side, like the the third pair and then the extra LD spot um, in training camp is going to be a really fascinating battle. You've got like four guys in contention there between Matt Irwin, Christian Wolanin, and Akito Hirose and Guillaume Brisebois. I mean, we've, we're at the point where we've we've all, almost even like forgotten about Jack Rathbone, right? Like. Um, compared to, you know, last couple training camps, we looked at him as we're expecting this guy to, tr- to make the team out of camp and uh, potentially, if he even breaks out, be an everyday third-pair left-shot defenseman. And it's like now he's totally buried on the depth chart. And that's totally fine because he hasn't shown enough uh, as a prospect to sort of, I think, warrant that opportunity here. But it's just, I think, a testament of how deep they are now in terms of depth guys that can come up and play. And, and that doesn't necessarily solve the question mark at the top end of the roster within the top four. Um, like it's not necessarily, it's not a case of, wow, they're swimming. Like, look at this blue line. It's so good. It's more <laughs> a case of, um, all right, you've got Hughes and Ronick. You like those building blocks and, and we'll see how Susie and Cole fit in. Obviously relative to the cost, they were good additions. And then beyond beyond um, that, if you're looking at just five, six, seven, eight type options, they're they're flooded, and that and that's nice to have because, look, with Vancouver's travel schedule, um, it's really taxing. And year after year, look at the number of defensemen that this club had to go through last uh, last season. It's just we're always accustomed to a ton of blue line injuries, and it's and it's nice to have some depth that can come up and play competent hockey. Harmon, we were talking a little bit about a Bluger Amon bottom six, and do you think if you roll Bluger Amon as your bottom six group, like, is there any concern in your mind about Vancouver's ability to score as a team five on five, despite 
what we all know was this club's lack of issues producing offense last season. It, it is for sure an area where they, you know, at least at the center position in those bottom six slots, don't have enough of an offensive punch, right? I think in this case, you're going to be hoping that the bottom six wingers can drive a lot of that offense, right? Namely, I think right off the bat, you're hoping that Vasily Podkolzin and Nils Hoaglander can take uh, a step forward because when you look at Hoaglander's 5-on-5 five five scoring profile, especially when he first entered the league in his rookie season, that's, that's an area where at even strength, he produced a ton of offense. And of course, that was when he was playing alongside Horvat and more of a top six opportunity. But now heading into, you know, his age 22 season, I believe he he's hopefully now in a position to take a step forward. And, and if he can do that, then that's a guy that you're expecting to drive a lot of offense. Uh, Connor Garland down the stretch, you know, he didn't play a ton, obviously with Louise Patterson played a little, played some minutes with uh, JT Miller, but a lot, a lot of his minutes were spent in the bottom six and, that's where he's typically been a five and five scoring ace. And, and that's where you, you want him, um, you know, let's say in a third line capacity, hopefully driving results if he's in that type of uh, role again. Uh, Dakota Joshua scored 10 or 11 goals. Uh, he's somebody that you are leaning on. If, if he can score 10, 11 goals again in a fourth line role, that's fantastic. Uh, so I think it's those types of wingers, you know, Pod Colson, of course, that, that, uh, that I also mentioned, you want him to take the next step offensively for me the scoring responsibility in the bottom six is going to have to come down to those wingers because i agree i'm not expecting a lot offensively from bluger or oman what's the spot on the roster as it stands now that you see as like a yellow light like not cause for outright concern but something you're monitoring anyway yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily a specific roster spot, but, but more a stylistic, like when I look at this back end, one of the, that's not like a glaring red flag, but one of the things that I wonder about is whether the Canucks still have enough puck moving besides Quinn Hughes. Uh, and the reason I say that is when I feel like there's a pretty, you know, sometimes there's a misconception about this idea that if you just have one good good puck mover on a pair that that's all you need right and look if it's Quinn Hughes that you're talking about then yeah you can get away with (laughs) his partner being very limited with the puck that's that's not a problem but when you look at the second pair for example um, I think a lot of people are looking at you know Philip Pronick and saying all right like let's say if he plays with Carson Soucy that all right Hronick can be the puck mover um, the primary transport guy and Soucy with his defensive acumen his size um, like, that's a great style fit. And look, it could be, but the thing to keep in mind is that when you look at Hronik's profile, he's not really, like, he's an all-around, he's been last season an all-around two-way type of contributor rather than a dynamic, flashy puck mover, right? Like, for as good as he looked in his cameo, and, and trust me, but trust me, we all saw, he looked very solid in the few games that he played a, as a Canuck, Um it was more in an all-round capacity with his calmness, with his poise, uh, with his ability to make defensive stops. It wasn't as if he was single-handedly skating pucks out of the defensive yeah. zone. And even when you look at the tr- the zone exit tracking in Detroit, Heronik ranked fourth um, in Corey Schneider's tracking among Red Wings defensemen in uh, controlled zone, e- zone exits 
per 60 minutes. Um, and Detroit's blue line isn't exactly swimming with high-end puck movers. And, and I think what you saw with Hronik in Detroit was that, okay, when he was paired with Ole Mata, who was also a competent puck mover, at least passable, like that pair was then able to, you know, drive decent results at 5-on-5. Five five, but when he was paired with, let's say, Ben Sherratt, who was, you know, a stay-at-home, defensive, um, physical type of presence, but very limited with the puck, you know, that's where Hronik struggled a little bit because all of the puck moving burden fell on him. He didn't have support there and it was too much on his plate. And I think, um, you know, that's an area where when you add Cole and uh, Susie, I love the defensive skill set that they add. I love the size. Those are necessary ingredients. Um, you know, the penalty killing, absolutely. But neither one of those guys is going to, even in a secondary sort of role, help, um, you know, transporting the puck. And I wonder if there could be a little bit too much of a strain for, from that perspective on Hronik, especially when, you know, big picture compared to last season, you're also um, presumably going to be, um, you know, losing Ethan Bear, who is one of your better puck movers. And for as much as we, you know, talk about the Canucks' defensive struggles and their need to, you know, beef up on the blue line, add more size, add more heft, be better defending the front of the net, a big part of their defensive issues were also that they couldn't, efficiently move the puck up the ice and feed their forwards, right? I mean, mm. um, I can think of, for example, you know, some games like the Seattle one, one of Tockett's first games where, you know, Seattle's forecheck came in and the reason the Canucks were totally overwhelmed in that type of game was because, you know, they kept turning the puck over. They weren't quick enough beating Seattle's forecheck. So that's still a yellow flag. That's still something that I'm going to be monitoring for this blue line heading into next season. A few more minutes here with Harmon Dial of The Athletic on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. And, you know, one of the things we, when, when Jim Rutherford was still regularly giving us sound bites to chew on, you know, he talked a lot about it doesn't just have to be upgraded personnel, right? The system has to change. That was when Bruce Boudreau was still the coach. But I know even as recently as at the draft, when Drancer was talking to Rick Tockett, right, he mentioned, you know, space plays. Sometimes you just have to flip it out from the zone and let the forward skate under it and win a battle. He liked punt and hunt, by the way. Oh, yeah? He just doesn't call it that. He was like, I like that, but I call it space plays. <laughs> is that is that going to have to be a big part of it, given the limitations still on the defense core? I guess my other question of that would be, do they have the forward group that can win those puck battles at a high enough rate to make that a viable strategy? Yeah, I mean, well, well that's the biggest question, right, is because I think when you sometimes see – um, a, a team like Vegas, for example, that you know might employ that strategy a little bit of of trying to put pucks into space, especially off the flanks. It's, it's a big reason they're able to win those battles is because they have guys like Chandler Stevenson that can um, win those races, put defenders on their heels, and this Canucks forward group definitely could still use some more speed, right? So especially down I the middle, think, yeah, absolutely. So. I think what you're going to have to do is pretty similar to kind of the formula that got them into the playoffs in the 1920 season um, with green was a situation where, look, this team isn't going to be, I'm not expecting them to be one that, you know, as a five man unit is, is breaking pucks out beautifully and um, they're zipping the puck back and forth and you have speed coming through, coming through the middle and controlled plays through the neutral zone. Like that's not what I'm expecting. Um, what worked in that 1920 season was um, a situation where it's just trying, trying to get the puck up as quickly as possible, even if it's not necessarily with control. 
and then a lot of dump and chase and just and relying on your team's ability to win battles off the walls. And when you hear the the, the, the terminology that uh, the talk it refers to, uh, wall guys playing north south. I mean, that sounds a lot like Travis Green hockey. It's um, a lot of similarities you can draw there. So to me, I, I think you're going to be borrowing a lot from the 1920 season playbook in terms of of trying to play fast, trying to play as a team that's faster than you are individual skaters. If that kind of makes sense, mm. that as a team you have more quickness um, in moving the puck, making quick decisions than you necessarily are. Um, fleet of foot. Harmon, one thing you bring up green hockey, and one thing that I think was sort of an undertold story when we consider the green era was, you know, we saw them score, but they gave up a million goals. And then we saw them, and the penalty kill was so bad that it sort of hid this, but we actually saw them play good defense five on five at the start of that 2021-22 season but then they couldn't manufacture offense. And and I always sort of saw that as a symptom of the defense defensive quality that this team owned. And I feel like we saw it in mini or maybe in a sort of miniaturized version where under Bruce Boudreau, they could score. And then all of a sudden they're playing some two, one games under Rick Tockett. They're coming out ahead in some of them, especially toward the end. But, um, you know, do you think there's a sort of, if you have a limited defense core, do you think it's an either or <laughs> uh, sort of question where it's like you can manufacture offense, you can prevent goals, but can you do both? Yeah, I think it, it, it is to a certain extent, but it, I view it more as sort of like a scale, if, if that sort of makes sense. Where yeah, it's like, like a dial. Yeah, like a dial. Because I agree, you're not going to have your cake and eat it too um, with this. You know, I might I have think... my cake and eat it too, Harmon. <laughs> I, I don't know if you know me, but. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, you're, it's going to be more of a long-term multi-year process to get to the point where you're a team that's, you know, high-end at both offense at, and defense. Because if you check both boxes, then you're a top 10 team in the NHL. And even the most optimistic fans, when you look at this Canucks team, um, I don't think any, nobody's looking at the Canucks as a top 10 team going into next season. So inevitably that means you're going to be sacrificing a little bit. And I think it's about, okay, how aggressively are you going to turn, turn the dial um, and man and try and strike that balance between trying to, trying to give the players enough offensive freedom to create and uh, score, generate chances, but also tighten up enough defensively, particularly off the rush so that you're, goalies aren't left um, out to dry. And it is interesting that down the stretch, and of course there are so many qualifiers, right? The new coach bump, the fact that the schedule was softer. Um, but it, it was fascinating to me that they, it, that their defensive results in overall five and five play was legitimately better under Tockett, And they didn't leak nearly as much off the rush, but it didn't come at an overwhelming sacrifice of offense. Right. Clearly, they weren't as like dynamic as they maybe were under Boudreaux. But I wasn't I wasn't uh, I wasn't as worried about the offensive attack as I was, for instance, during the early part of the 2021-22 season when when under Green at that point. Yeah, the defensive results were better. But man, that was like one of the most boring 
yeah. painful experiences. <laughs> it was like all they could generate offensively was point shots. Yeah. Um, I, and I don't think it got that bad under Tockett. So that at least strikes some, um, you know, some hope and optimism heading into next season. But you're right in that it's going to be interesting to see how you manage that, uh, manage that dial because, you know, typically one is going to come at the expense of the other. Harmon, great stuff as always, man. We appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, boys. That is Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us here, weighing in on the Canucks depth chart and how they are situated going into next season. We're live at Prospect Development Camp here at UBC. Final hour of the show coming up. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd and Thomas Trance live from Canucks Prospects Development Camp here at UBC. And uh, we are now very pleased to be joined uh, at our table in person here by former Canucks forward and now the Assistant Director of Player Development, Chris Higgins. Chris, thanks for making time for us. How are you? Thank you, guys. Great. Uh, what's Just give us an overall sense of what the organization, what, what the goal is for the, a week like this or an event like this bringing the players and bring them all together with the staff? Well, I guess there's a lot of goals, to be honest with you. Uh, like I said, you know, off air guys to you is, you know, it's first, uh, you know, first opportunity for a lot of guys to get to, uh, get their feet with the organization, you know, look into their eyeballs, meet everybody, um, you know, from the, from the new guy standpoint. And then, you know, from an organizational standpoint, um, you know, try to t- run them through, you know, the details of what it takes to be a pro, um, making sure our, they know our resources that are available, um, and, uh, you know, obviously have some fun doing it. I mean, we got a lot of coaches out there, a lot of guys that, uh, you know, certainly I played with that have great personalities and try to keep it light, but more of an educational than an evaluation camp, obviously. Um, you know, we, we've slowed it down. We have a lot of coaches out there to pull guys aside. Um, but uh, just giving them a little snapshot of kind of what their day-to-day, you know, may look like uh, in the short future. There's a lot of coaches to players. High, high coach-to-player ratio on the ice out at UBC at the moment. What are the advantages of that? And in passing along Intel and, and just the act of player development, is it a science or is it an art? <laughs> um, well, it's nice to have all, the, all those coaches out there because, you know, some coaches can run the drills and other guys can evaluate and, and analyze and, and pull guys aside, like I said. And that, it's so valuable to just give little tidbits. I mean, uh, you know, I certainly remember still coaches pulling me aside and telling me things it really resonates with you when a guy you know spend some spend one-on-one time with you so we do value that um <laughs> player development man i don't know i art or science i, I feel like a part-time psychiatrist uh, half the time too so uh, i am you know i think <laughs> development we wear a lot of hats you know as, as you said sorry but as you said lots of coaches out there on the ice you've got a pretty significant development staff now with the organization and i know some of them based overseas they're in town for this event how how important is the opportunity just for the staff to kind of get to know each other build that chemistry build that rapport with each other yeah i think you know being on the development side certainly you can feel a bit isolated you're out traveling yeah. watching graphics by yourself you're you know you spend a lot of time by yourself uh you know i talked with Michael Samuelson, you know, he can feel a bit isolated. And I was like, ah, I feel isolated and I live in Vancouver sometimes because, you know, I don't get to see a lot of guys, you know, unless I'm going to Abbey games or Canucks games, you don't really cross paths. So even to pull the development staff, um, you know, Cammy Granado is going to have the development staff over for dinner tonight. And, uh, um, you know, we could talk about uh, how to improve for the next year, how things went for camp. Um, we're always trying to get better. I think that's the best thing about our, our development group is uh, – 
uh, we're open to criticism. Um, you know, we'll hash it out. We'll have debate, and uh, we'll all be better for it. Chris, you have an interesting trajectory as a player, where you were a high pick, and you came into the league, and immediately were filling the net when you when you hit the NHL in Montreal, and then by the time we see you in Vancouver, right, you're middle six, grit and grind, win every battle, kill penalties player. You still scored, but it was a, a different role. Mm-hmm. Do you bring the experience of adapting the way you did in your playing days to your role in player development today? Yeah, no, it's something I tell the guys. Like I, I you know, Tom Melander and 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 uh, Lacara Mackey. Like I, I empathize with their with the pressure and the stress of being a first round draft pick, especially in a Canadian market. You know, obviously getting drafted by Montreal, it's the, you know it's peak pressure, right? So I, I do empathize with those guys, and I understand. Um, the stress and, and pressure they put on themselves, but um, you know the way I grew up and, and Mike Almasaric growing up in Long Island, like we always, we, we battled like we were seventh rounders. Like we almost, I almost wish I was a seventh rounder yeah. because <laughs> the odds are stacked against you, and uh, we love that. We love that. Uh, we love that mentality. We we you know have to play the play with a chip chip on your shoulder. Um, like I said, we wanted to come in and 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 set the bar in Montreal with with testing with everything. We wanted to be number one. We had that mentality. So. Um, you know, hopefully we're trying to, you know, pass off that mentality to everybody. Like I said, we're, we want leaders. We want guys that set the bar, that drag guys up into the fight, up to their level. Um, you know, we want to, you know, have a culture of leaders here. One of the things that we've heard uh, Patrick Alvin mention in relation to prospects, right, is it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, it's not about what you're doing here this week or even next season. It's about how you can help the team years down the road. How do you balance that message with also making sure, you know, they're doing the absolute most to improve day in, day out? Well, they have to believe and they have to trust in us. So that's the first uh, the first step with those guys, establishing a personal relation, personal relationship with them, get them to trust us, get, get uh, you know, make them understand that we do believe in them. We do believe in every which, every every one of them. And I think that's one of the positives of our, our development staff is I really do believe that we – can make anyone here into the NHL, you know, between myself, Sammy, Como, you know, Hank and Danny, RJ, even Cammy. Um, you know, we we really truly believe that uh, if guys come to us, you know, it's something I mentioned. These guys come to us with a blank canvas. Like, don't don't start painting your picture of what your what your, your game's going to look like. Come to us with a blank sheet. We'll paint it together. Mm-hmm. Be accept. You know, have the have the humility to allow us to help you. To allow us to give you messaging you never received before and maybe cultivate an identity that's vastly different than what you're playing at right now. Chris, for those who wouldn't have a sense of this, building a development camp roster and building a relationship with these players starts, for you anyway, maybe an hour after they're drafted, right? You, you get drafted, you go through a yeah, media it's car It's like wash, a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get dropped off to you, and yeah. you're also handling the families. Yeah. You're building out the roster, and, yeah. then you're, and then you're right into this week. I mean, this 10 days is, is a lot of work for you personally and, of course, the development staff as a whole. Can you walk us through what it's like to live that um, and, and what sort of your points of emphasis are in getting it done? Man, I got to be honest. I'm flirting with burnout right now. It's been. <laughs> You're almost at the finish. Oh line. man, I'm, I, all I want to do is sleep. <laughs> no, as you know, the, obviously during the draft we have our meetings in the morning, go over all the draft picks, you know, and uh, you know, being out and about, I've seen some of these guys play, can help out, uh, chime in, where, you know, with the guys that I have seen. Uh, day one's pr- usually pretty easy, just the first round. Um, you know, it's only got one guy coming up the suite, so Tom and his sister and his mom and dad are up there, able to spend some quality time with them. Uh, day two is is an absolute mess. It's 
You got guys drafted. They're bringing their families up. Uh, Hunter Perscavage had like 50 people up there, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandmas, uh, you know, they're, they're So that, that actually reminded me of my family coming. It was just this whole crew coming in. You know, at that time you're entertaining, you know, 50 people. There's other draft picks, and you're like, oh, my God, we draft. I, I missed draft picks. You know, I'm talking to family. I'm like, oh, my God, I missed Manayo. I missed <laughs> I, I missed these guys, right? Bang, and I'm bang, like, bang in the third yeah, and then, round, it, you know, right? and then yeah. it's like, you know, we've got to get pictures of their passport for travel, um, you know, email, phone. Um, you know, do they have their equipment? Um, get them out right away. Um, you know, we flew back after uh, the night draft, uh, draft two. Good call, by the way took me 48 hours yeah yeah and then um you know get back here it's a day before camp guys are showing up i went down to the rink to receive some guys for medicals then you're right in the first day of camp so it's just <laughs> you know and that and you know um you know coordinating with all departments the medical staff strength strength staff uh, you know equipment managers it's uh you know <laughs> certainly a big project certainly learned a lot of things and um um, you know, we'll be better for it next year. Well, and that's from the drafted prospects side. But then you're also filling out the roster with a lot of invites uh, who you know aren't property of any NHL team right now. What, how much of a scramble is that on top of just dealing with the guys you've drafted? Oh, we try to get put a bug in there early and try to get yeah. as many guys as we can. U.S. College a lot easier. Uh, you know, CHL are going to pass through the draft most likely. So, um, you know, we we identify. Scott Young, Frank Golden identify some some uh, targets early. We get some some verbal commitments. Uh, but it's really just relying on, on, on your staff. I think that's, you know, something Patrick Alvin does well is he has confidence in, in um, the autonomy of the different departments and, and really lets, you know, really lets those, you know, really uh, respects the view of their departments and trusts them. Um, you know, trust is, a, trust is a big one in this organization. I, there's a high degree of trust, uh, you know, in, in every department right now. I always say one of the most frequently told lies in the NHL is we don't use development camp for evaluation. <laughs> Fair or unfair? Do I have to adjust that one? Uh, to be honest, we do have the mindset of an educational camp, but for, for me it is virtually impossible to turn, out, turn off the analysis right. and, and evaluation. Uh, that being said, I don't think you can hurt yourself in a camp like this. Yeah. I, I, am, I do say we're, it's an educational camp, I, but I am evaluating, but this is a data point. You know, if you don't test well, this you know what I say to these guys. Well, this is the worst testing you'll ever have. You know what I mean? This is this is this is the floor, and we're going to work up from there. So it's never it's never a negative. Um, you know, it's like I, I have an eight year old daughter. I, I tell her mistakes are gifts. They they teach us what to learn on what, what to learn. It's the same thing is here. Mistakes are gifts. Make mistakes. You know what to work on. You take it back to your team. You work on it. You come back next year. You're better for it. I'm fascinated by tomorrow in terms of what it looks like on the schedule. So to give uh, our listeners an idea of this, club has split development camp into Group A and Group B, and they'll both do a separate morning skate tomorrow and then play an evening game, which is very much like a simulated NHL experience, right? What's the thinking behind handling the dev camp schedule like that? Uh, because it seems instructive to me, but but a fascinating wrinkle I've never seen before. Well, uh, you must have not gotten the updated schedule. We're not skating in the morning down here. Oh, okay. Sorry. All right. <laughs> Thanks for the, the updated update. schedule. Is uh, those guys are going to go down to Rogers and have a little talk with uh, Alex Trinka, our new strength and conditioning coach, about what he's learned over his career about how it takes guys a full day to prepare for a game. Um, you know, certainly something that became it was a little more natural for me for, but for some guys they you know they show up at five o'clock and then they start getting prepared we want to talk about it it's the first minute you wake up that's it prepares from the game from there 
Um, we these aren't the teams that will be tomorrow. Group okay. A and Group B. Uh, our coaching staff holds a little draft. Which oh, is really? yeah, Very yeah, yeah. Broadcasting? No, no, that's not, no, because someone's got to get picked last, right? <laughs> but uh, we have a little fun with it, you know, and a uh, uh, lot of jokes, a lot of, a lot of. Uh, oh my God, you're taking that guy, you know? <laughs> so uh, we have a lot of fun with it, but um, you know, we want to make it competitive, want to make it even. So that's uh, you know the best way we do it. We'll try to reverse engineer the draft order when we see the rosters uh, yeah, <laughs> last yeah. year. We'll try yeah. to break it down. That's what we do. Uh, one of the things that was interesting that we heard uh, Hunter Prestevich uh, mentioned it to us yesterday when we talked to him was that Arshdi Baines addressed the, the group here uh, at the start of the development camp and talked a little bit about his experience making the jump to pro hockey. What was it about Arshdi Baines that, that made him the right candidate, the right guy to do that? To well, that it's something I th- was thinking about this past year as an idea I had and uh, went up to Arsh. Um, uh, towards the end of the season, asked me if he was comfortable doing that. It's it's hard. It's hard to go up uh, and, and and talk yeah. in front of a group and and talk to your peers and, and open up. And I just wanted to be vulnerable. I wanted to work him through, um, you know, his mentality in junior, what he saw himself, what, what was his identity in junior, what, what was his fears and anxieties over the summer after he signed with us. You know, playing for his hometown team, obviously, probably put a tremendous amount of pressure on himself. Uh, what was what did he learn in his early season struggles? He was healthy scratched a bunch of times and then i want to talk about what changed for him was it a was a was it a moment was it a talk with a coach or was it more gradual would you learn about yourself and you know so towards the end of the year Ars was one of our more dependable two-way forwards and has a completely different identity than he had in junior so we want i just want to say you know talk to you guys like we, we talked about runway and how it's not a marathon this is one year for Arsh. How much? How much has changed? Look how much has changed, guys. Look how much he, he looks. Look at how he measures success now. It's completely different than just a year ago. What's three years down the line? What's four years down the line? Arsh comes with with uh, you know humility to learn, and and an elite work ethic. I'm betting on a guy like that. I'm betting on a guy that is able to change and evolve, and uh, take in new messaging and run with it. So um, you know, it wasn't like uh, Arsh is the gold standard of the organization. It was just more. Um, you know, maybe this message means a little bit more coming from a peer. When you have, and I know Zach McEwen used to be this within the organization, like a proof of concept success story about where you can get to if you buy in, if you if you sort of are, are adaptable, if you're willing to learn. Uh, but then I think about a guy like Tristan Nielsen who came in undrafted uh, on an AHL-only contract, mm-hmm. ends up signing an ELC last week, uh, Arshdeep Baines, as you discussed. What does it mean to a development staff to have some sort of like proof of concept peer leaders within a group in terms of uh, solidifying your message? Oh, the name that came up, um, you know, that Patrick brought up, brought up was was Nils Oman, mm-hmm. cast cast aside by, uh, I believe it was Colorado, yeah. mm-hmm. come to our camp. You know, we we had no loyalty to this guy, right? So, and he made it play play the full year in NHL. He was here last year in this camp last year. Played the entire almost the entire year in the NHL. So, um, you know, it doesn't matter how you got here. I think that was that was an important message for the invites for the guys drafted. You know, rounds five, six, seven. You know, it it really truly does not matter. We did not draft this guy. He came in, worked his tail off, had the humility to learn, change his game a little bit. Uh, held himself to a higher standards and accountability than 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 he had before, and and he ran with it and 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 was rewarded. 
Chris, I know it's a busy week, and you're, you're up against burnout, as you said, but <laughs> yeah. thanks for making time. We'll let you go. I appreciate it. I hope you get a nap soon. That's, uh, my, yeah. that's my wish for you. <laughs> I'll, sleep, I'll sleep after tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> now, that is Chris Higgins. Thanks, Chris. We thanks, really guys. Appreciate, appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, former Canucks forward, of course, longtime NHL player, now assistant director of player development with the organization, giving us uh, some really great insight into – some of the goals, the thought process, you know, as you mentioned, a bit of a different schedule tomorrow with the scrimmage going in the evening and talking to the strength coach at Rogers Arena. Uh, and then also I thought really fascinating insight into the decision to have Arshdi Bain specifically speak to the group mm. and lay it out and said, hey, it's not that he's the gold standard or he's a finished product now, but just his experience has so much to teach everyone else about what they're going through. Well, you know, one thing that I've heard a lot about Baines internally is – you know, this was a guy who was working out and playing tired early in the season because of what it would do to change who he could be and what he could play like later in the mm. year, right? Uh, there's a lot of work going on there. And Baines is an interesting example in particular because this guy's on-ice intelligence is through the roof. Yep. I, I don't know how much you've watched him play, but the collection of spin passes is outrageous. And in the dub... He was able to use those like Gilbert Perrault to put up an outrageous mess of points. And now you see them being used in the with the Abbotsford Comics, except – or the Abbotsford, Abbotsford Canucks. Canucks. I got stuck between Utica and Abbotsford, um, which I think is no. like Omaha. I was going to say, it doesn't sound um, great. <laughs> but, uh, but now you see it with the Abbotsford Canucks, and instead of it being in service of the home run play, it's in service of gaining the blue line. Yeah. Right? It's in service of – you know, uh, beating pressure to set up the point pass, uh, you know, from behind the net. It's uh, it's a pretty impressive trick that Baines has pulled off, and uh, you know, I think it matters a ton when you're when you're working with anybody, right? But especially athletes, to be able to point to a success story, to be able to point to why it works and why it matters, I think that's huge in getting by, and especially because I don't know how much a Gen Z you've worked with, but I work with Harmon Dial. <laughs> And, and one thing about Gen Z these days is you got to explain why. Right. It's not enough to be like, well, this is how it's done. Well, why is it done that way? Right? You, 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 you better have a holistic answer. And so having Baines be able to sort of provide the why, that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, and again, Archie Baines, a guy who would have been at this uh, this camp last year, I believe, yep. and you know goes on For to sure – not doesn't play at the NHL level, but has a, a really successful first year in the AHL for an yeah. undrafted guy, 38 points – in 66 games, and as as Chris Higgins said, that's despite a slow start where he's a healthy scratch uh, sometimes early in the year. And then, as he mentioned, Neil Zaman also at this, right, and a little bit older, right, uh, to be at this uh, at this camp last year. But then he plays a whole year in the NHL. And mm. I think for whatever level these guys are jumping to, whether there is somebody here like Nikita Hirose who would have designs on you know carving out a spot for himself in the NHL, whether it's somebody like Josh Bloom who's going to be making the jump to the AHL this year. You know, there's there's Probably. different levels. Probably. Yeah. yeah, right, trying to. You know what yeah. I mean? That's the goal for Josh Bloom. There's different levels that you can point to at different stages of the, of the process that you can point to from last year. And, you know, again, it's not the kind of thing that's necessarily going to – provide these like really exciting dividends in the near future but it is the kind of thing that if you establish it over a you know five-year timeline 
you can start chalking up some wins if you keep that pipeline stocked and if you're on top of the development process all the way through. Yeah, and it's part of the Mark Donkification of yes. the Vancouver yes. Canucks organization, which they're trying to do. And, you know, it's an interesting approach and one that does have some benefits, obviously, if you can pull it off, and, and some trade-offs. I mean, we were talking about the contract slots thing with Harmon, right? Mm -hmm. And realistically, like, I don't know, for just for basic roster flexibility reasons, I don't know that you'd want to bring in more than one additional body Seriously. between now and training camp open up. So may, opening up. So maybe you bring a PTO guy in. Maybe you have some additional looks. Um, you know, maybe you try and find a, a trade or a, or a home for a guy who you're not going to use next season, but who requires waivers before he hits waivers, right? We we see those deals all the time. Jack Rathbone yep. would seem like a candidate for, for a move like that, although his one-way contract uh, maybe makes that a little bit complicated. But one of the reasons why you have so many contract slots is all of the bets you've placed, right? If you, if you draft players, you don't have to sign them for, you know, two to four years, depending mm -hmm. on where they were drafted out of. If you're trying to supplement a lack of picks, you're actually using contract slots on players, you know, that, that Cole McWard class, where, like, McWard's a really interesting project, but is he going to be capable of helping you play games next season Yeah, uh, the way the way your average depth guy on, a, on an AHL deal would be? So, you know, they're, they're, it's a really fascinating thing to watch play out um, because it feels like a grand experiment in some ways. Like, we don't really see teams take this approach to supplementing their depth and the Canucks have sort of tried to forge a path forward here and so the stakes of a week like this a stakes of you know uh, finding more Niels Amon quality mm -hmm. success stories are, are pretty high year one it went really well but the club also stepped up that effort over the course of the past four months between NCAA free agency and on and on so we'll see uh, we'll see how it sort of evolves as it really takes root within the organization. Well, and it definitely makes, you know, we were talking about Christian Fitzgerald, the, the camp invite who's going to the University of Wisconsin next year, local guy. We talked about him in the first segment. And for me, it makes me focus on him way more than I would in an alternative situation, totally. right? Because you know that's a route the club wants to pursue, that they're going to be looking aggressively at NCAA free well, especially agents. Especially if you're a center. So normally, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, right? But So normally, you know, it would be all Willander, LeCaramacchi, et cetera, and we're still paying really close attention to those guys, but you also have to be locked in on what that guy's doing because you know that's a huge part of this team's mm. strategy. It's another thing that strikes me, and in, in one way you could say, well, it's trying to – it's trying to make up for a lack of draft picks. So in that way, it's kind of like, no, no, we can be aggressive, but still have, we can have our cake and eat it too, right? right. We can trade draft picks, Burn the but we can also have this, this depth in our development pipeline because of all these things. But I will also say, it also strikes me as something that could be a part of the conservative stopgap strategy we saw on day one of free agency, right? Where we're building this pipeline that will really start paying dividends three or four or five years down the road and for then us. we won't have to sign and those in the guys. meantime we're going to use these guys yeah. until we're ready for this wave of talent now look as you pointed out and we can all point out what what happened on july 1st doesn't necessarily fit with what we had seen previously from this management group so maybe that's not the right way to read an emphasis on development either but like it's the kind of thing that at least in my mind anyways could fit with a more conservative patient approach to team building absolutely although Again, you know, the thing about when you get a Mangiapane hit in the fifth round is that it, it's not like he's a fourth liner. No. Right? Like, the upside plays still, I think, need to come at the draft. 
And even though, even if you do a really good job supplementing with depth uh, pieces and, and cost control depth pieces through some of these non-traditional routes that the Canucks And my thought has always been, if you believe in your development staff, right, and you want to make that an emphasis yeah, give and a priority. clay. Give them, give them more also, right? Give the, increase the volume and the quality. And that, that would be where I would differ. Like, if you, if you think your development staff is going to meaningfully up the rate at which you turn out players, well, then you want more third-round draft picks, right? You want more second-round draft picks because you want to give them more, more swings at the plate. You want more to give them the more Brustevichs to Absolutely, work, work to, really, to really try uh, to mold here. I also love that they draft the team. That that's sounds, fantastic. That sounds hilarious. That's fantastic. I'm I'm gonna like. Who who do you think's first first overall pick? Fitzgerald. Got to pick Valander. <laughs> you think Fitzgerald? I mean, after you know what it may it it's got to be. I would say my first pick. If I was do you like think it has to be a Canucks draft? Pick? If I'm Probably, genuinely right? if I'm genuinely trying to win, okay, my first pick is Akito Horosi. All right, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, because he's at the end of the day. I'm not drafting to win a, a, a scrimmage, dev camp scrimmage, seven years from now. I'm trying to win one tomorrow, so I'm going to take the 25-year-old guy yeah, over the 18-year-old guy. Kid. Come on. He's the oldest I'm guy taking, here. I'm taking the guy who, like, looked in place at the NHL level last year. Hirose, no-brainer, first overall. Oh, that's fantastic. That's good content. We'll get Dimitrion in draft. Good content on July 4th right there. Who yeah. would go first in the Canucks prospect development So if camp? I take Hirose first, who's your pick two? <sighs> probably, well, probably Fitzgerald. I, I don't think First of all, keep him away from the, yeah, the no, chemistry I was gonna, with Hirose. I was going to say to you. It's a strategic pick. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> and, then, and then I think I'd go Volander, and now I have yeah. my top pair. Yeah, and then you're into, you know, Jonathan LeCaramacchi, who's a guy we haven't talked about at all yeah. here, right? But, you know, it still has that high-end upside anyways. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but uh, it is it is fun to think about. Uh, 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We got one more segment coming up here. We will dive back into the Canucks depth chart discussion. Uh, we are live at Canucks Prospect Development Camp at UBC. Final segment coming up here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strands. Live from the mobile Kintech studio, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Always the best part of broadcasting uh, live on location somewhere is when the day's activities end and we're just <laughs> alone in a cavernous empty ice rink doing a radio show now. That's where we are uh, with Canucks Prospect Development Camp. But we still have one more segment to go on the show get your thoughts in 650 650 uh, again to the dunbar lumber text line this one comes in from al in calgary he says i know you guys brought him up briefly but can you talk more about connor garland why did he and Tockett get along in arizona but he is not getting the same opportunity now well, i thought he got way more opportunity he, after the coaching he change. had at least a very clear defined role Right. It was there was no question about how he was going to be used or where he was going to play. Also, don't. And this is useful. I, You know what? This is useful context to pivot into talking about the Canucks blue line, too. Mm -hmm. Do not. Get confused. By how a team takes line rushes. Do not read too much into the way that names are positioned on the whiteboard 
and express themselves in the line rush drill, which then get tweeted out by me and Batch, usually by Batch about 40 seconds before I tweet, (laughs) and that's why I hate him. Do not get confused by that, because what you really want to look for is usage. Connor Garland, after the coaching change, played a top six role in terms of actual usage, his actual minutes per game. Five on five minutes per game, Garland played more than, like a fair bit more than Oman and Joshua, and actually played more than Phil DiGiuseppe. Eh, maybe not Phil DiGiuseppe. I, I can't remember. I don't have the exact data in front of me, but played top. There's only five forwards ahead of him. Yep. So he played a top six role despite being on the third line. And I bring this up too because it's useful context as we discuss things like who plays with Hughes. Now, I was talking to some pro scouts today, actually. I was working the phones a little bit, just catching up with some people after the draft. And one thing I put to all of the pro scouts I talked to was, who do you like better on the right side, Susie or Cole? Mm -hmm. And equally proficient tended to be the answer. But one guy brought up a really interesting point to me that that I had to think about at length. And it was that, you know, Susie's... The, the bulk of Susie's experience on the right side came in the first half of that Kraken season where he played a lot with Mark Giordano yep. before Giordano was sent to Toronto. Um, you know, in Minnesota, he played the left while Brad Hunt, another lefty, played the right, our, our good buddy Brad Hunt. Well, we should get Brad Hunt on to talk He's about fantastic. Carson Susie. Yeah, That's actually a good point. <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, he also played, uh, he played the left side for all of last season is him and Justin Schultz both stayed relatively healthy and were stapled together on a super effective third pair for the Kraken. Um, And his point was, if you put Susie on the right side with Hughes, one advantage you get is that you've got a one-time option up top Mm. for Hughes, like to give Hughes some, like a high seam pass that Hughes will basically always have available as he draws in, you know, the, As he works down the board and, well, know, and turns he, to look to and pay, he make almost a pass. always draws the center. Yep. Like the reason Hughes is so dangerous is that that work he does, like just above the left side half wall, when he's dipsy doodling around the blue line, pulls an extra defender. Like he almost always draws the center high, yep. and then he's free to find all sorts of interesting passes. In the slot, well, or the thing with Quinn Hughes is he can do like the backhand saucer pass, totally. which is back to the middle of the ice, right? And it's no problem for well, him. Or he'll find, or he'll find the quicker, easier play to a, to someone down low, and then yep. the defense scrambles, and maybe they get confused, and maybe you get an additional opportunity. And his point was, when he does that, having a guy who can shoot it, rip it like Susie up top, he likes that idea offensively, but typically speaking, Cole is the better defensive player, so it's it's sort of a trade off. And my point more than anything is do not get confused. Like, I expect at the end of the year two defensemen who will lead the Canucks in even strength ice time, on, and I'll go per game so that injuries don't yep. ruin my over-under approach here. I think it's going to be Hughes and Hironic, and yet I only expect them to play significant bulk of time together when the Canucks are trailing, like yep. situational usage. Hironic, I expect to play top pair minutes. Both Cole and, and Susie, I expect to play second pair minutes. As it stands today, even though I don't think we'll see a lot of like Cole Susie together minutes outside of four on five play, and I would bet on Ian Cole potentially to play more than Carson Susie as well, just because he he's done that in his career, right? Like even last year he was at nineteen minutes, he, all told, he was yeah. third on the Lightning by even strength ice time per game, and it was like seven seconds ahead of Cernak, who had a bunch of injuries in there. So I I, I mean, 
We're we're making a little too much about Ian Cole played top four minutes for the mm. Lightning. He did in the regular season because the Lightning keep everyone fresh, but he was fifth on the Lightning in ice time at even strength in the playoffs. Like, you know, very much asking. But again, I just mean I don't mean in terms of is it a good bet or not, but just the track record of playing those sure. minutes in the NHL is there for Ian Cole in a way it's not for Carson. For Susie. sure. Although that Susie Giordano pair was Seattle's top pair. Now they didn't win a lot of games. But I wouldn't blame Grubauer and Chris Dreger's lack of goaltending necessarily on a Susie Giordano pair that I watched a fair bit and thought was pretty effective. So, I mean, I don't have a – I don't I, – I think it's a totally fine bet, um, but it would depend on the odds which side I'd prefer because well, I, I think it's a coin flip. I still wonder also if we don't end up seeing – like a Noah Juleson or something with Quinn Hughes on the top pair and you spread out your two additions yep. elsewhere, right? Because are you getting – is it diminishing returns to have one of the guys you targeted and brought in to help your defense with Quinn Hughes when then are you left with, you know, Akita Hirose and Tyler Myers? And, hey, we all like what we saw from Hirose, but that's not a third pair that necessarily gives you a ton of confidence versus Susie or Ian Cole with Tyler Myers and somebody like Noah Juleson with on the, Hughes. On the other hand, if you put either Hirose or Christian Willannon or Jack Rathbone, we'll just give him a mention for fun, with Tyler Myers, I have a lot more confidence in that. In the puck moving. In the puck moving. And and that's sort of the, the issue with, moving one of them further down to support Myers is you might end up just with a third pair that gets buried more often. And if you have, you know, uh, Tyler Myers getting buried more often as opposed to uh, playing up ice where yeah. his, you know, like Tyler Myers is really good at defending the blue line, for example. Right. right. And he's, and he's got a fair but, bit of creativity. But you got to get it out. You got <laughs> you yeah. to give him a chance to defend the blue line. So, so I think, uh, I think having, um, you know, for me anyway, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I would, I would not oversell the extent to which Cole with Myers makes for a safer pair mm. than a Willannon or, an, or a Hirose who might help you spend less time in your own zone. It, it is interesting, though, because, again, coming back to the punt and hunt space plays thing, and we know— Are we just going to adopt Rick's terminology? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. 100% we are. I think he's going to adopt mine. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Good luck winning that battle of wills. <laughs> <laughs> You're all, Rick, I'm going to exclusively call it Punch and Dungeon. You're going to adapt. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and the prioritization of size and toughness, right? Do you, they just say, you know what? You're right. We don't have a, we don't have a lot of puck moving with, a, for example, Cole and Myers pairing. But that's fine. Flip it out, and then just, we're, we're content to have you guys clear the crease and do that rather than putting in someone with less defensive reliability like a Willannon or, or a Hirose, or at least less experience doing right. it in the NHL. Yeah, and, and – Look, you have options. We're going to see all, all sorts of options. How often do you see a team roll the same three defense pairs for an entire season? Not often. Never. Never. You barely see it in the playoffs. The only playoff team I can think that hasn't had to change their defense pairs at some point is like that L.A. Kings team in 2012 where mm. they literally just won it in 14 – sorry, 19 games. It took them 19 games to win the Cup, and, uh, and no one got hurt. But for the most part, you're, you're going to see a game or two where someone's out of the lineup – um, and uh, over the course of the regular season, we're going to see 15 to 18 different pairs play, yeah. you know, hundreds of minutes. Well, yeah, you're going to see 12 defensemen or whatever come up and play for this team Typically. at some point. And yeah, I think this team's averaged over 10 defensemen used per season over the last five. That's wild. I know, and it's it's how it works. There was one year they used seven, and it was like, what? How is this possible? Happen? Yeah. Uh, six fifty, six fifty. Not coincidentally, I think it was nineteen twenty. I, I think you're right. right? Yeah. It was uh, that would have been like ben Jordy played, Ben, and yeah. and I don't know that they had 
any of their AHL guys come up. Yeah, I think you're right. Because um, even Ben, it was like hard pressed to get in the lineup. Yeah, maybe, and maybe, and maybe it was eight guys, but yeah, for the most part, that that was the outlier season. Six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We've been talking about the new look Canucks depth chart post free agency. Not a ton of additions, obviously, but they do get the you plug know. in. Get the plug in. Remember, yeah, you can go the see athletic. the Canucks yes, depth yes, chart yes, at yes. the Athletic. I feel like I've mentioned the Athletic a few times today. Don't worry. Hey, Amen. Don't worry. Hey. I don't know that anybody is listening, tuning into our show, being like. Where can I find Rance's content? <laughs> <laughs> if only they'd mention it. <laughs> but you're right. I'll get the plug-in. I'll get the plug-in. Um, the other thing that stood out to me, we've talked a little about the center depth. And, cross you know, promotion, Cross, maybe. that's what it's all about. Yeah. Synergy, Drance. Oh, no. Don't, Synergy. Don't go there. Um, <laughs> we've talked a little about the blue line, a little bit about the center depth. It is really fascinating looking <laughs> I at... I draw the line at synergy. <laughs> That's too ridiculous. <laughs> it is funny looking at the situation on the wings, because, I mean, how many hours and hours and hours have we talked about the glut of wings on this team? And that's true. That's not wrong, right? Especially in terms of salary cap space committed and, you know, guys with overlapping roles and all that. But it's also, and you know, I know Harmon was making this point. There's a, re- there's still a really clear drop off from NH clear NHL guys to. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we'd want to call them up at this position. And the names that really stand out to me, and again, this is some, you know, we we on the free agency signings, right? These are more raise the floor, not raise the ceiling. The guys who stand out to me as key players, if this team does want to raise its ceiling, are on the wings. Hoaglander and Pond Colson, right? Yep. Can they separate themselves from the pack of wingers in some way and turn it not just from we have a bunch of guys, but it's actually an area of strength. We have a bunch of we have a bunch of guys who are overqualified for the positions they're playing in, right? Because right yeah. now it's like who's overqualified for where they're well, slotting. Well, let in? me let me. Uh, I want to throw this back at you in a different way because I think you're right, and I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah. But for Wing to really be a strength, I think there's a more important guy. And it's Andre Kuzmenko. Sure. Because Andre Kuzmenko contributed like a star in year one. And if this club doesn't get star level contribution from Andre Kuzmenko in year two, then you're looking at a wing group where really there's a lot of guys. Like right now, coming off of last season, you know, there's one guy who you'd say, man, that guy is a star. He almost scored 40, mm-hmm. and he was, you know, a lights-out generator, mm-hmm. both on the power play and at even strength, and that's Kuzmenko. And yet him maintaining his gains, for me, is like higher leverage in terms of – and it's one, that's, it's one that's hard because people understand the idea of the breakout season. Mm-hmm but really struggle to understand the idea that like a guy who just played his first year might not be able to recreate that, you know, that, that that's that actually maintaining a star level of form is incredible. And and I think about this too, in the context of Pedersen and and Quinn Hughes, like what does it look like for Quinn Hughes to be better? Well, I I can't even, I can't even fathom it. We are so used to factoring in, you know, quote unquote, internal improvement from those guys. Like that, 
not that they can't do it, because I don't want to bet no. against them. They're phenomenal players. We've seen what they've been able to accomplish. It's amazing. But at a certain point, you top out. You max out. And you can't re- – that can't be where you're looking – that can't be the low-hanging fruit you're looking for. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. we'll be 5% better because those guys will be so much better. Like, they were already incredible. They were already at the very top of their positions in the NHL last year. Does Quinn Hughes spend the entire summer in a cage eating raw meat? <laughs> And he comes back 15 pounds heavier, but without Without having lost a a single step of elusiveness, and all of a sudden he can shoot the puck 10 miles per hour faster. I mean, that's that's what it has to look like. Like, yeah, and that's an. You know, I'm, and even I'm, that, like, I'm I'm laying this out as like an exceedingly outrageous bar of expectation. I'm not betting against him doing it, by the way. But I, I, you know, but even you know, he's so good. Even the adding, it's hard to get better. You know, adding all of a sudden a really good shot to his arsenal, in terms of his overall impact and and moving the needle in terms of winning, like that's actually a fairly marginal upgrade mm-hmm. for a defenseman to improve his shot. It is in terms of the actual like. Points added to the standings the, for the Canucks. The reason I disagree with you is if Quinn Hughes added to his shot, all of a sudden he's getting front, like people are fronting up high on the Canucks power play. And the way to think about it is not Quinn Hughes now shoots more and that's more valuable. Mm-hmm. It's what does a player like Quinn Hughes do with an extra half second? Right. When, when, when he freezes a guy with a shot that they absolutely have to respect. And I, I, I promise you, Quinn Hughes would use that half second to great effect. I'm not saying it doesn't have any impact, but yeah. again, just translate that into points in the standings, right? Like, yeah, you know what I mean. It's not, it's not no. changing your world. It's not like all of a sudden he's a different player in terms of value. No. It's just it's a marginal improvement, For sure. and it's I think it's a similar thing with Elias Pettersson. Again, not that there's no there's no room for them to improve, no room for them to get better. Well, I'd say you the, just can't be counting on these leaps and bounds improvements no. from them. I'd say the penalty kill is one area where I think he can be better. I think he showed flashes of of what he can be, but I think he's got another level to get to. I also think that his defensive season last year, like, I thought it was a little bit oversold in the Vancouver market because Pedersen's such a dynamic two-way driver Mm -hmm. that, you know, people... He finished seventh in Selkie voting, so he's getting a lot of attention now for his defensive game. And I, I do think that the, for me, anyway, the fact is is that the team was higher event in general when Pedersen was on the ice. Like, I don't think that was even his best defensive season. It's just that now he's playing on the penalty kill, so yeah. we're paying attention to it. Um, but, you know, like really getting toughs on an every game basis and, and winning them, I think he's got that in him, and we haven't seen that yet. Like, we haven't seen that yet over the course of a full year. So for him, I think there's a, a more straightforward path, but there's also the fact that Pedersen on his game – defies the relatively fixed percentages that we've become used to in the sport of hockey. And at some point you are defying gravity. Like at some point you, at some point you're going to have a Pedersen season where his on ice percentage is 11 rather than 15. And that might not be the new normal for him, but it could be a season of it. Right. You know what I mean? Like we see that with elite players. I think that could be, I think that could absolutely, we do see it. But but you know what I mean? Where they, they exist in a different band and they still hit the lower end of that band, but then you'll see them bounce back up the next year or you know what I, you know what I mean? Even for the absolute best of the best, they tend not to hit, the outliers that Pedersen has ha- hit in the over the course, like even Stamkos, Crosby, Sedin tier guys yep. who are like some of the best efficiency drivers of the last decade, um, tend not to sustain what Pedersen has. So you know, I, I, he's going to be an efficiency driver, and you're right, he's he doesn't have as far to fall as your average guy. Yeah, but 
you know, he those percentages have been overheated a bit. And, and so that would be one thing I'd watch for too is, you know, and, and more than anything, not take for granted. Not just assume that Pedersen's going to, you know, personally drive the sorts of, of offense five on five that he has. Well, and that's part of my but point. But he will regress with... on the power play. So it's going to be yes, offset that's true. because he's going to score more he's on the power play. He's actually going to put some power yeah. play goals in. That's one of my points with um, Pod Colson and Hoaglander as well is, you know, if you're trying to find guys who can surprise you with how well they play yeah. next year, you know what I mean? Like Kuzmenko, it's going to be hard for him to repeat that. But the unfortunate thing for him is a lot of people are going to expect him to do it, right? So if he has totally. 35 goals, it's not going to feel like found money. It's like, yeah, that, that's what we wanted from you. You're playing with Elias Pettersson and you scored 39 last year. There's not a lot of guys who I can picture far outstripping what we expect of them or what a reasonable expectation sure. is. The guys with that sort of upside might be Hoaglander and Pod Coles, and I don't want to put that pressure on them because, again, there's there's reasonable expectations. But, you know, to use one of your favorite uh, analogies, right, the bell curve, mm-hmm. I think there's more room on the positive end, the long-tail positive end of the bell curve for those guys than for most other players on this team. There are for sure, and and yet – there's also a lot of downside risk because that, that's inherent in it, right? Totally, There's the upside yeah. and the risk. Yeah, like the the hitting the fat part of the bell curve for them, right? Like, wh- what's the fat part of the bell curve for Hoaglander? It's like Cali Yarncroft. Yeah, right. Like that would be great. That would still be super helpful for this team, but it probably doesn't fundamentally alter their ceiling. Absolutely not. And and what is that's it? That's just we have another winger who's a good NHL winger. Totally. Right? And what is it for Pod Colson at this point? Are we talking Sharon Govich? Are we talking? Yeah. Um, I know. I'm just trying to I'm think. Trying of, to think. Are we think? Are we talking Tyler Bertuzzi? I I don't think that's the fat part of the bell curve. That's the high end. Really? Yeah. Right. At this point, probably. Yeah. Well, and, and then, but in both cases, you're also at this downside part where, and and this also is not. This is just how prospect attrition works. Look no further than Jack Rathbone, 24 months removed from being penciled into the opening night lineup and actually getting it done at training camp. Mm-hmm. Right. And and two years on. You know, Patrick Alvin's name-checking all the depth defenders they're relying on and his name-checking unsigned guys like Noah Juleson and not saying Jack Rathbone. I mean, that's just that's just factual. That's where we're at. That's not even me putting any editorial color on it. Um, you know, to some extent, if Hoaglander and Pod Colson aren't plus contributors in the top nine this season, they both become just guys. I mean, it's amazing how fast you mm-hmm. get to that bridge. And then given the, the talent coming up behind them on the wings, right? I mean, that there's there's also, you know, a treadmill effect where you have to stay ahead of the... Um, you have to stay ahead of Klimovich yeah. and Carlson and Lakaramaki in a couple years, right? Like that's, <laughs> and we, we all know they've drafted a lot of wingers. And Aiden McDonough. I mean, what happens if Aiden McDonough's point per game plus 25 games into the season? Yep, and, with Abbotsford. And Pod Colson's where he was at the end of last year, sort of in and out of the lineup playing in the bottom six. I mean, how long does it take before... Someone's like, do we need to give this guy a look? You know, uh, or and it could happen with Linus Carlson. I'm not, I'm not betting on McDonough so much as I'm going over the range of possibilities. Yeah, it's uh, it's. A bit, I mean, it's Pud Colson's last year of his ZLC, right? Like that's a key year for for a prospect for a young player. No, how to, no matter how you spin it, Hoaglander's going to be off uh, of his ELC this year. Uh, this text comes in. If Hughes gets a better partner, it will increase his impact. More difficult to key in on him. The thing is, the, there's no one the Canucks can put on the ice. There's very few players that anyone can put on the ice that would cause defenses to, like, oh, well, we can't really key in on Quinn Hughes. 
You know what I mean? It's like trying to protect Barry Bonds in a lineup. It's like, well, it's still Barry Bonds. We're not so worried if you have Jeff Kent hitting behind him. We're not going to pitch to Barry Bonds, right? Like, I get what he's saying, but I don't know. You're not going to, like, distract teams away from Quinn Hughes. You're not going to distract teams away from Quinn Hughes, but could you find him an amplifier? And what I mean by that is Devon Taves to mm. Kale McCarr, right? Like a, a player who's great in their own right, and they don't, you know, in your mind's eye, what's the perfect partner for Kale McCarr? Is it a non-hitting, defensively responsible defenseman who plays hockey like a holding midfielder? Like, yeah. no, not necessarily. Yeah. But for some that's reason, it, that's how it worked. <laughs> for some reason, it's perfect, right? Um, and so, you know, the, and this has happened many times in Canucks history, right? The Canucks. Canucks pro scouts and management spent years banging the table. We need a big-bodied, right-handed shooter with speed to bring out the best of the Sedin twins, right? And they they bid on Mike Ryder in free agency, Mm. and that was partly why they brought in Mikhail Samuelson as, like, a conservative bet to achieve that, and on and on. But it was like an obsession. Taylor Pyatt, Steve Bernier, I mean, go go down the list. And it turns out the answer is, like, the scrappy uh, French-Canadian guy. Left shot. Yeah, left shot, defensive specialist. Passed, right? Um, so, you know, it might come in an unexpected way, right? Uh, for all we know, for all we know, it's a Keto Hirose and we just haven't seen it yet. But, uh, I, and I'm not actually suggesting that they try that so much as just, uh, just a thought, you know, there is a world where you find the perfect partner for Hughes and that levels that pair up. It, oh, I think the, the impact of yeah. his pair, you know what I mean? But I don't think it'll totally. necessarily translate like Quinn Hughes is doing more. No. The pair can go up if you if you get a more talented or the exact right fit. But it's not going to be like, and then and because Quinn Hughes is playing all, better necessarily. Yeah, all of you a sudden, know what I mean? All, all of a sudden, a coach in a pro, uh, pre-scouting meeting is like, oh, and they also have Quinn Hughes. Yeah. I almost forgot. Yeah. No. We were so focused on the other guy. No, that's not going to happen. No. Defenses are always going to be very, very alert to what Quinn Hughes is doing uh, when he's out there. But, yeah, I mean, that long-term search for, as you say, the amplifier, the guy to the ideal candidate that you're really excited about playing with Quinn Hughes. Uh, that one continues. Uh, quickly here, just a couple minutes left in the show, Brad in Cloverdale says, Mikheyev has as much room for improvement over last year as Hoaglander and Pod Colson. It's complicated. I though. mean, Mikheyev was putting putting in everything that touched his stick it's last year, but we also know he has another level in terms of his skating and his all-around game. His, his defensive driving, his penalty killing. Mikheyev will be, so long, provided that he's at full health, um, and, and, you know, those ACL tears, sometimes sometimes it's not the first year back that you're back to who you are. It's yeah. the second. So, you know, there, there's some patience required. But once Mikheyev is moving like Mikheyev moves, you're going to see a totally different player in terms of their two-way impact. And yet, even if all of that happens, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect him to maintain the offensive level that he hit last season. Well, that's the thing in terms of percentage and in terms of actually scoring. But could he... Could he be a more effective overall player? Yes. yes. It's just not necessarily going to look like it on the score sheet. But, right. I mean, I, th- I think especially on the penalty kill. Right. A fully healthy Mikheyev. Oh, game changer. That That's a huge Especially with how deal. aggressively Rick Tockett and co. want to kill penalties. Uh, we'll wrap it up here from UBC. Thanks for tuning in. Final day of Canucks Prospect Development Camp. Tomorrow we will have full coverage of it for you. The People's Show is up next here on Sportsnet 650.